a focus summary of chapters 15 and 16 of Frankenstein. From the cottager's history, the monster learned both to admire their virtues and to deprecate the vices of mankind. But crime was something he regarded as a distant evil, and he was more desirous than ever of being an actor in the happy scenes he observed. One night he discovered a leather bag with some books, Paradise Lost, Plutarch's Lives, and The Sorrows of Werder. After that, he devoted himself to continuous study of these histories, which brought him from the highest ecstasies to the lowest dejection. The Sorrows of Werder threw light on subjects that had previously been obscure, and he was able to see much of what it illuminated reflected in his own experiences. He admired its hero, identified with his suffering and alienation, and wept over his death. The experience prompted him to consider deeply who he was, where he had come from, and where he was going. Where Werder taught him despondency and gloom, Plutarch's lives elevated his thoughts and taught him to admire the heroes of the past. It introduced him to grand spheres of action beyond the limited view available to him from where he stood. Its stories of great leaders and wars and government inspired in him an ardor for virtue and an abhorrence for vice. Paradise Lost excited far deeper emotions. This story of an omnipotent god warring with his creatures filled him with wonder. He saw himself in Adam, a being linked to no other in existence. But Adam was a perfect, happy creature, protected by his creator, while he was wretched, helpless, and alone. Sometimes he saw himself in Satan, because when he looked on his cottagers, he felt the bitter gall of envy. He had long before discovered Frankenstein's journal in the pocket of the clothing he took from the lab, and now he could read that too. He was sickened by its description of the disgusting circumstances of his origin, and he cursed Frankenstein for bringing to life a creation from which even he turned in horror. The monster's only comfort was his conviction that the amiable and benevolent cottagers would not turn him from their door. The presence of Safi seemed to have diffused happiness among the cottagers. They seemed contented and peaceful, while the monster felt every day more like a wretched outcast. He harbored hope, but it was dashed every time he saw his reflection in the water or his shadow on the wall. He tried to fortify himself for the time he would present himself to the cottagers, and he allowed himself pleasant daydreams of amiable creatures that sympathized with his feelings and cheered his gloom. But he was alone, and again he cursed the Creator who had abandoned him. When winter arrived, he conceived his plan. He would enter the cottage when the blind old man was alone. There was nothing terrible in his voice, so if he could be heard and not seen, he might gain the goodwill of de Lacy. One day, the young cottagers departed on a long country walk, and de Lacy stayed behind, playing sweet, mournful music on his guitar.
When the old man lay his instrument aside, the monster decided that this must be his moment of trial. He knocked, and the old man invited him in. He entered, and said that he was a traveler in need of rest, and the old man welcomed him warmly. The monster explained that he was an unfortunate and deserted creature going to claim the protection of some friends he loved. The old man urged him not to despair, saying that these amiable people were sure to be full of brotherly love. The monster then explained that though they were kind, a fatal prejudice had clouded their eyes. But the old man assured him that if he was truly blameless, they could surely be undeceived. The old man expressed faith in his sincerity, said it would be a pleasure to be serviceable to him in any way he could, and asked to know the identity of these friends. As the monster sank to the chair, sobbing in gratitude, the other cottagers returned. He cried out to De Lacy that they were the friends, and begged for his protection. But Agatha fainted, Safi rushed out of the cottage, and Felix dashed forward and struck him violently with a stick. He could have torn Felix limb from limb, but he quitted the cottage and returned to his hovel. The monster was consumed by feelings of rage and revenge, and in that moment could have destroyed the cottage and its inhabitants. He spent a miserable night in the woods, howling like a beast, destroying everything in his path, and bearing a hell within him. Finally, fatigued from exertion, he sank into the sick impotence of despair. He vowed everlasting war against man, and especially against his Creator. The sun rose, and the pure air of day restored him to some degree of tranquility. Reflecting on the events of the day before, he concluded that he had acted imprudently, and had been too hasty in his judgments. He resolved to return to the cottage and to try again to win the affections of the old man. That night he walked back to the cottage, and when morning came he waited for the family to arise. But hours passed, and the cottage remained dark. Finally, Felix and another man arrived outside the cottage, and the monster heard Felix tell the man that they could no longer live there, since his wife and sister would never recover from their horror. The last link that had held the monster to the world had broken, and he bent his mind toward injury and death. By night he set fire to the cottage and danced with fury around it while it burned. He then resolved to fly from the scene of his misfortune, and recalling that Frankenstein had mentioned Geneva, he settled upon that as his destination. His travels were long and his sufferings intense. The nearer he came to Geneva, the more he felt the spirit of revenge enkindled in his heart. One spring morning he felt cheered by the balminess of the air, and daring for a moment to be happy he thanked the blessed sun, and soft tears bedewed his cheeks. Winding among the paths of a wood, he came upon a young girl running and laughing. 
her foot slipped, and she fell into a stream, and with a desperate effort he saved her and dragged her to shore. Her companion then came upon them, tore the girl from his arms, and fled with her. The monster followed, and the man aimed and fired his gun. For weeks after, the monster suffered from both the injury and the injustice, and his vows for revenge rose. Some weeks later, he reached the environs of Geneva. One evening, oppressed by fatigue and drifting off in a field, his sleep was disturbed by the approach of a child. It occurred to him that this creature was too young to be prejudiced by his deformity. He could capture him and educate him as his companion and friend. But when he seized him, the child lashed out, calling him a hideous monster, and saying his father, Monsieur Frankenstein, would punish him. Realizing that this child belonged to his mortal enemy, the monster grasped his throat to silence him, and soon the boy lay dead at his feet. Gazing on his victim, he felt a hellish triumph. Seeing the locket on the boy's breast, he looked at the portrait and felt for a moment transfixed by its subject's loveliness. Then he recalled with rage that he had been forever deprived of the delights of such beautiful creatures. Seeking a place for refuge, he entered a barn he thought empty, but he discovered sleeping there a woman blooming in the loveliness of youth and health. He bent over her and whispered, "'Awake, fairest!' thy lover is near. Knowing she would awaken and see him and curse him, he vowed that she, and not he, would suffer. He placed the locket in the fold of her dress so that she would atone for the murder he had committed. He stayed for some time in Geneva before he wandered into the mountains, consumed by the passion that Frankenstein alone could gratify. Any companion of his must share his defects, and this being, Frankenstein must create. 